I know it will bug you the entire evening if this is scratching and scraping. As long as I don't move. So this evening I'd, I'd like to reflect a little bit on the dialogue between um, wise mindfulness and wise effort. So I'm told that if we were to do a word search, a word count in the early Buddhist texts, uh, in the, around the teachings of liberation and around the teachings of insight, the two most frequently uh, occurring words, and, and I'm going to give you the Pali words, are sati and the word padana. So I'm going to translate this for you. And both of these words are linked with another word, sama, which is usually translated or wise or skillful or right. Now, sati, like many Pali words, it's really, really challenging to find an English equivalent because it is a word that is a really multi-spectrum word. So it is usually translated as mindfulness. Okay. Uh, my understanding is that probably a more accurate translation of this word sati is a present moment recollection. Present moment recollection. So I mentioned this is a very broad spectrum word, with, and, and, and it, it has many nuances that the, the Buddha basically portrayed, as, as is usual in the teaching, through, through a, number of different, a number of different similes. So sati, or mindfulness, is sometimes likened to being a guardian of the heart, protecting the heart, protecting the mind from the surges of habitual patterns that lead to distress. Sometimes sati or mindfulness is likened to a surgeon's probe. It is a quality that probes um, or investigates a wound to determine its nature, to understand what is causing that wound in order to come to a diagnosis and then in order to prescribe a, a course of treatment. Sometimes satya mindfulness has this nuance of, of a kind of simple attentiveness, really developing a capacity for an intentional focus. Um, sometimes the simile of the cow herder is used to describe sati or mindfulness, to almost describe this aspect of mindfulness that has a kind of a spacious overview spacious overview of actually what's going on on the ground. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the, there's a simile that's likened mindfulness to, to uh, a gatekeeper, to a gatekeeper, someone who stands at the gates of a city and it really describes this quality almost of discernment. To say, you know, the gatekeeper is often kind of discerning who it's helpful to kind of welcome into the city and who it's not so helpful to welcome. So sati has this discerning quality of what is helpful and unhelpful within ourselves, what leads to suffering and struggle and what leads to the end. Now this other word that's, that sits alongside sati as a very frequently used word in Pali is padana which is usually translated as wise effort. And so this wise effort is actually concerned with how we engage with and how we respond to all that is revealed in the light of mindfulness. So wise effort speaks of a cultivation 
an inner cultivation of what is skillful, what is helpful, what are the healing, what are the really liberating qualities of heart and mind that can be cultivated. Wise effort is concerned with, again, it's a a broad spectrum word, with with cultivating and deepening our capacity for mindfulness, for investigation, for energy, for joy, for calm, for equanimity, and developing our capacity, developing a sense of capacity and learning the lessons of release, of relinquishing, actually, many of the habitual patterns of aversion and ill will and clinging and confusion and anxiety. The patterns that we see experientially that create and recreate distress in our lives. Now, wise effort, it's also, it has this element and sometimes it's used interchangeably with another poly word, virya which I'm told actually translates most accurately, although it sometimes translates as energy, that I'm told is a more accurate translation, is actually around courage and heroism, actually. Heroism. It, it, re- it really describes this quality of, 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 cor- of courage that's part of wise effort, the, the courage that's really needed for us to, to really stand still amidst all of the events and experiences of our lives, rather than living a life of avoidance and agitation and dissociation and numbness. It really is the courage that is often required to swim against the tide of many of our historical habits and embedded patterns of reactivity that really too often lead us to abandon the moment and to abandon ourselves. Now, sati as a present moment recollection you know, part of this, of course, is, is just the capacity to inhabit this moment. And that is truly something in itself. But this recollection often is really considered to be a wider recollection. It's a recollection of our deepest longings. Our deepest longings for, for kindness, for compassion, for generosity, for connectedness. It's also recollecting our sense of capacity, the genuine possibility of each of us truly living an embodied life, our own capacities for very profound peace and wakefulness and understanding. It's also a recollection of our aspirations. Our aspirations, I think, to be creative and alive and responsive human beings, fully engaged with our life. I think as a recollection, it's also a recollection of what actually we know, the lessons that we have learned from our lives. Now, sati, uh, mindfulness in in this wider sense, it it, it kind of has a family of origin, I would almost call it. You know, certainly in Buddhist psychology, mindfulness is not something that stands alone. It kind of has this extended family. And and it has a, a family of origin, And part of that family of origin, of mindfulness, is in the field of integrity or ethics. Words and thoughts and acts of kindness that really treasure the well-being of ourselves and others and a commitment to that through how we engage with the world, restraining from thoughts, words and acts that harm ourselves or others. And in certain, in the traditional sense, ethics is really concerned with, with caring for the kind of footprint that we leave on the world, on the lives of others, and the kind of footprint that we leave on our own minds and hearts through our words and acts and choices. 
think part of the, the family of, of sati or mindfulness really lies within metta, which we will speak about starting tomorrow. Sharon will speak about this in much more depth. Our, our willingness to befriend, our willingness to, to develop that capacity for befriending, forsaking ill will and abandonment. Sati has even a more extended family, you know, patience, serenity, equanimity, investigation. So mindfulness in this sense, as I've mentioned, never stands alone, and, and it's not an end in itself. It has a family of origin, and it has a present moment recollection, and it has a sense of direction, too, in terms of understanding and in terms of liberating the heart. Um, now, we probably would recognize that the times that we actually really suffer in our lives the most are generally the times when we feel to be most unconscious, most unaware. I doubt if this is news to anyone. <laughs> I mean, we, we really do get a sense experientially in our lives the way in which heedlessness or forgetfulness really seems to, to quite directly open the door to, to our, our world of impulse and reactivity, the, the play of many of our psychological and emotional patterns that, that undermine our well-being and our sense of freedom. And we also see that sati, or mindfulness, opens another door. It opens the door to our capacity to live a more intentional and embodied life. It opens the door to the arising of our capacities for well-being and resilience and insight. So this evening what I would like to primarily focus on is this interplay and this dialogue between wise mindfulness and wise effort. Now, in, in traditional teachings of the Buddha, I think, the, this dialogue is spoken about really quite explicitly. I mean, understandably, in, in many mindfulness-based applications, it's not spoken about so explicitly. Um, and, and there's, a, I think, a very wise caution um, about that, because there is such a, a, a carefulness um, really not to set up anything that could degenerate into striving and judgment and the familiar domains of um, success and failure. And yet any of you here, and I know that there are many of you here who do actually teach mindfulness, and you can't help but be aware of actually, even without speaking about wise effort, really how much effort your clients and patients actually make to be present within their lives and within everything they experience. Now, I'm pretty sure even today, you know, just sitting here today, um, I guess we're pretty aware of how much considerable effort it is required of you to be present today. And what considerable effort is required of us to, to really learn what it is to, to walk new pathways in our hearts and minds and lives. I know that you know after all of these years of teaching, every retreat I teach, I am so awed by the amount of courage and intention and skillful effort that I see people making on retreat just to be here and just to continue to show up and, and persevere in the midst of so much that can feel so challenging. Just as I'm sure many of you have been very awed and very touched um, by the courage 
of many of the people that you might work with in your life who, who find that willingness inwardly to be steadfast and present in, in the face of chronic pain or chronic illness or amidst loss and grief and depression and anxiety and really learning to walk new pathways of kindness and compassion and wakefulness. I'm sure it's evident to us all that that we don't actually do this to stay the same. You know, we, we don't do this to be more intimately acquainted with our chronic pain or, you know, our obsessive minds or our tendencies to be preoccupied. We're in a process here, a journey of understanding. And the outcomes of that journey and the outcomes of that process is actually it really does change the shape of our hearts. It really does lead to quite considerable transformation. Now, in this, in this family of mindfulness that I was speaking of, this dialogue between mindfulness and effort and kindness and compassion, this is actually quite unusually in this world, quite a happy family. In that there is a sharing, really, amidst all of these qualities of a very common bond, a commitment to healing, to bringing suffering to an end to understanding its causes, to fostering and nurturing the seeds, the seeds of well-being, the seeds of equanimity, the seeds of happiness and understanding that truly live in all of our hearts. What we do here is not easy. It is not easy. It is not easy sometimes to change the patterns of a lifetime. I'm sure many of you are familiar with, with this particular poem, but I, I'm going to revisit anyway because it's, it's so central to what we do here. And in a way, it, it, it really kind of illustrates this dialogue between mindfulness and effort. The autobiography in five short chapters. I walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in, I'm lost, I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open, I know where I am. It's my fault I get out immediately. I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. And I guess we all recognize between chapter one and chapter five, that's quite a journey. Mm? That's quite a journey. 2,500 years ago, you know, if any of you are ever interested in read some of the early texts, we really come to see that the, the human mind was really not so different then as it is today. I mean, each of us here has a personal story that in very real ways is unique to us. And our personal story, of course, you know, shapes and forms or has been shaped and formed by, you know, conditions in our lives and events and experiences that have shaped really our way often of seeing ourselves, of seeing the world, shaped our views, our beliefs, our sense of capacity or incapacity, our sense of worthiness or unworthiness, of being lovable or unlovable. And the path of insight and the path of mindfulness really is one that asks us to embrace and to understand and to make peace with this story. 
But as the retreat goes on and, and as we you know, come together in groups and, and listen to one another, we begin to also see the universality of the human story that we are also asked to make peace with. That so many of the, the patterns and habits that create confusion and suffering, they're, they're really not just personal territory. We see how much the, the beliefs in insufficiency, the patterns of aversion, the patterns of abandonment, of flight and fear, of judgment, of the, the compulsions and craving and identity, that how they operate in the human heart. And, and certainly from the perspective of, of evolutionary science, you know, there was a time when many of these patterns really did serve a pretty good purpose. But we actually really then begin to examine whether they really serve that purpose now. We also see in the human story actually our shared longings for peace, for acceptance, for intimacy, for care, for compassion, and for freedom. Now, there's a, it is really interesting for us to track in our own lives, in our own days, sometimes those transitions or those shifts that we, we make between moments when we feel really present and really mindful and, and moments when we just don't. And, you know, and not as a judgment and not as a comparison, but actually to really begin to explore what's, what is the difference in those moments. Now, sometimes what we see when, when in the absence of mindfulness, in the absence of that sense of, of inner connection and inner sensitivity, we see the way that patterns of confusion and distortion can grow and deepen and how their outcome is often one of greater suffering and discontent. It's almost kind of predictable. And we often see, it's a, we surprise even ourselves, <laughs> that sometimes we can feel so lost. And then it's just like a light switch goes on. And, and actually there's that remembering. Oh, actually, I know how to be with this. I know, actually, there's a way of actually seeing this and embracing this. And, and in those moments when the light switch goes on, it, we actually really have that felt sense of what it is to, to soften around some of these habit, habitual patterns, to, to find some acceptance and some care and some kindness. And often how in the light of that, the grip of some of these emotional habits eases and we learn we can bring mindfulness and care to places of illness and pain in the body and actually forge new relationships of balance and inclusiveness. And there's a deep relief in those moments of remembering. There's a deep relief in those moments of recollection because it's almost like it's a little taste of freedom. And, and yet we recognize, just as the Buddha recognized 2,500 years ago, that some of our patterns, emotional patterns, emotional reactivity, can feel so repetitive and so habitual and so embedded and so intractable that to the extent that some of our emotional patterns have actually become a kind of identity. It's how we describe ourselves. You know, we say, I'm an anxious type, or I'm an aversive type, you know, or, or I'm a, an obsessive type. I, I had this experience not long ago in the town where I live where, where I went into the post office and, and I, I went to, to go up to the counter and, and I saw this young woman waiting to, to go up to the counter. And I said, oh, I, you know, I, I think you were here before me, you know, you know go ahead. And she said, she said, nobody ever says that to me. She says, I'm the kind of pe person people always ignore in lines. <laughs> and, and the way she said it, it, I mean, she said it with such certainty, you know, 
that, that it was almost like, like this terrible sadness, this certainty that this is who I am. I'm the kind of person people always ignore in lines. Almost describing this kind of, this is a kind of life sentence. Now, this is the realm where the Buddha speaks about the, the vital importance of this dialogue between wise mindfulness and wise effort. How do we work, how do we practice with that which feels most intractable, most stubborn, most repetitive, most stuck? Now, there are a couple of discourses that I'd like to touch on this evening that really actually to speak, speaks very directly between, uh, to this dialogue between wise mindfulness and wise effort. And being, being aware that when the Buddha speaks about wise effort, it's not a camouflage diversion mechanism to get rid of something that we can't accept or, or don't want or can't embrace because that is kind of always like the near enemy of effort is how do I actually get rid of this? You know, how do I make this go away? Wise mindfulness is actually concerned with the ways that we engage with the stubborn and intractable in the ways that, that are dedicated to bringing, not getting rid of anything, but ways that are really dedicated to bringing struggle and suffering to an end. It's a present moment recollection of possibility. Maybe I don't always have to be the person that everybody ignores in the line. Perhaps wise effort, part of it, and part of sati, mindfulness too, I think, is, is recognizing that just because something has a long history does not mean that it has an equally long future. That, that this path is always one of immediacy, of seeing each moment, each mind moment, each heart moment, seeing that it is all living in a state of potentiality transformed by actually how we are engaging with what is being held and seen and illuminated by wise mindfulness. There's a wonderful few lines in the Dhammapada, one of the earliest, most loved texts, I think, within this teaching. The Buddha says that all that we are now is the result of all that we have been. And that all that we will be tomorrow, or even in the next moment, will be the result of all that we are now. And it's really pointing to this pivotal, pivotal sense of being present, the turning points that lay within this. Because we really do see here, and I think we touched on this this afternoon, that we, you know, we don't practice for a later peace or a, you know, a later compassion or a later kindness. You know, we practice for the compassion and the understanding and the peace of now. Of now. Now, one of these texts that really speaks very directly to this dialogue of mindfulness and wise effort is it's really about learning skillful ways of responding. And for me, that's another way of putting wise effort. It's learning skillful ways of responding to that which is most embedded. And this is a list that's really kind of quite pragmatic and it's, it's quite experiential. And like most of the lists in the Buddhist teaching, of course, it begins with mindfulness. It begins with mindfulness. It's the core, the foundational quality of all transformation. It's establishing a relationship. Mindfulness establishes a relationship. Mindfulness establishes a dialogue with what is being expo experienced in this moment. 
Mindfulness is a turning towards what is and being present just now, not concerned with the history of whatever is occurring, not concerned with the future, but concerned with this thought, this mood, this emotion, this sadness, this pain, its present moment appearance, established within the body, mind, heart, in the midst of the lovely and the unlovely. Reb Anderson, uh, you know, one of the well-loved Zen teachers in this country, he once said that Buddhas don't practice in the suburbs of suffering. They practice downtown. <laughs> it's kind of where we are. We're downtown. Now we're not in the suburbs. And I think that at times this is a kind of alchemy, isn't it? about allowing, learning to have that sense of allowing, that illumination, allowing the impossible to be possible, the fear, the anxiety, the sadness, the heartache. And it can begin to change just by being held within the light of a non-judgmental, caring attention. But what if it doesn't? Hmm? What if it doesn't? What if it doesn't feel true? What if it feels intractable? You know, what if some of our patterns feel uncooperative? And in this particular discourse I'm drawing on, the, the Buddha uses this phrase again and again as he goes through this list of responses that begins with mindfulness. And he says, if it still arises, he doesn't use, if it arises again. You know, I think this word again is a kind of saboteur of mindfulness, you know. But if it still arises, if it still arises, then he says, then let's, let's, let's explore some investigation. Let's use the surgeon's probe. Let's go beneath the labels of anger, of fear, of anxiety, contraction, agitation, and ask of ourselves, how does this feel? How does this feel? How, what is the body of anxiety? What is the body of sadness? What is the body of loneliness and, and agitation and, and, and preoccupation? We see how the words and the labels that we use so quickly to define or to describe, how they appear to describe almost like a state, something that is static, something that is fixed. But when we begin to really investigate, to go underneath the words and the labels, we actually begin to get a sense of how all of this is process. This is something dynamic. This is something alive. This is something in movement. I mean, it's, it's always so interesting to me the way in which Pali, the, the, the way in which the early texts were, were recorded, it's a language of verbs. It's not a language of nouns. It, it's a language of process. And, and it's really a sense that, that the body is a process. The, the mind is a process. Emotions are a process. All of our ideas of self are a process. Registering, registering emotionally, psychologically, physically, coloring our perceptions and our assumptions of self. And in a way, all of this process is somehow made, made solid and, and made static primarily through identification. The way identification actually turns process into state, into something that, that is almost kind of solid. When we actually begin to really investigate, to go underneath the labels, to go underneath the concepts, we, we actually do really get a sense of process, the way the changes, the, the arising, the fading, the fluidity of our thoughts, our, our sensations, our moods, they're always shifting. 
And then we change our language. Sadness is happening. Anxiety is happening. Loneliness is happening. This is something far more approachable than I'm sad. I'm the person people always ignore in the line. You know, I'm lonely. But then the Buddha says, if it still arises, once having investigated our inner landscape, and particularly in investigating the landscape of some of our repetitive emotional reactions. And by the way, most of our repetitive stuff is actually not news to us, is it? You know, we don't have to come here and sit on a cushion <laughs> with our eyes closed to know our most repetitive reactions and patterns. You know, one of the, one of the wonderful things I think about people growing up, you know, in, in this environment is, you know, we're really encouraged towards a lot of self-reflection in here, you know. Many people come into retreats, they already have a lot of insight. You know, it's not like they sit down in a cushion and look at their mind and say, well, I never saw that before. You know, imagine that, you know, obsession, you know, what news, you know. It, it's not like that, is it? It's kind of like we sit down in a cushion and we close our eyes, mm, you know. Oh, yes, you know, familiar visitors. Hmm? No, you know, met you before, uh, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not news to us. So... We're encouraged in this, in this landscape of, the, of familiarity, of, of, re, of re, reaction, actually to use a little bit of reflection. You know, we're, we're often good, I think, at, at judging and obsessing and preoccupation. I, I don't think we're always so well trained in reflection. Hmm? You, using thought as an ally you know, as a, as a good friend, uh, as a means of investigation. It's not always so encouraged, uh, I think, in our culture. And I think even in meditation, there's often the idea that somehow this is anti-thought, you know, just close your eyes and don't think, you know, and you're getting somewhere. Well, try and get through life without thought. You know, we're not going to do too well. It's actually about cultivating a mind that's a friend. And, and reflection is, is, a, is a kind of skillful use of thought. And the reflection that's really encouraged here in this landscape is reflection on outcomes at times. It's a good one. Reflection on outcomes. Not, not judging. Knowing that what is fed within the mind will surely grow. This is a natural law that whatever is fed will grow. So if there is that tendency, not only to say, for example, the tendency of anxiety or obsession, but also the secondary tendency to feed that, you know, with thinking, with, with obsession, with judgment, what's going to be the outcome? Does this lead to my affliction? Does this lead away from freedom? Does this lead to the well-being of my heart or away from the well-being of my heart? This is not about good and bad or about right and wrong. It's about discernment. Does feeding this fear or this obsessive tendency or this anxiety, does it obstruct the deepening of my heart? Or does it bring about a greater sense of deepening? Discernment is a very, very essential part, I think, of clear comprehension, of, of a very essential part of developing insight. And actually, discernment is the base of all wise effort and responsiveness. I mean, think about this on a wider level in our world. There's a lot of injustice in this world. There's a lot of inequality. There's a lot of unskillfulness. And I think it is really, really so important that, to recognize that the awareness of this is a beginning. It's a, be it's a beginning. But discernment asks us to take another step, really about what leads to suffering and what leads to end of suffering. 
we actually see that the suffering in our world asks for something more than our mindfulness. It asks for our engagement. How are we engaged to bring suffering to an end? How are we engaged in bringing injustice to an end? <coughs> I think the world will not always thank us for being the most mindful person in the world. Well, thank us for our responsiveness. And I think this is true in our inner world. Now, the near enemy of effort is striving, of forcing. The near enemy, sometimes I think of mindfulness as passivity or endurance. And it takes a, a, a lot of courage to put down the familiar patterns of aversion and abandonment that may have been survival mechanisms at one time, but recognizing that now in our lives there's a big difference between surviving and thriving. When there is discernment and we actually see, can begin to sense outcomes, we may find ourselves less willing to, to feed and entertain what really doesn't contribute to the well-being of ourselves or another. <coughs> Excuse me. The next step, Buddha says, if it still arises, take your attention elsewhere. Now, actually, this is not unknown in contemporary mindfulness-based applications, where there's often an encouragement if a person's lost an obsession or judgment or blame, come back to the body. Come back to the breathing. Shift the focus of attention. It's about cultivating an intentional attention instead of a compulsively driven attention. To, to learn to actually use the sense doors wisely. In the midst of contractedness, to use the sense doors wisely, to really see wholeheartedly, to listen wholeheartedly, to touch wholeheartedly. Um, almost kind of reestablishing mindfulness both outside of the difficult as well as within the difficult. I remember a few years ago, a, a student of mine was, was about to have surgery for breast cancer, you know, and, and being a very dedicated student, you know, you know, she said to me, I'm, I'm going to spend these days before my surgery on retreat. I'm going to meditate. You know, and I, I said to her, I think you should go to an art gallery. Not that I was suggesting she should abandon her practice, but actually really recognizing the, the kind of contractedness that was starting to happen, understandably. And, and the need at times in the midst of contractedness that happens to find a skillful means to reclaim the whole of the moment. Because I think we see for ourselves, when we get very caught in obsession or in anxious thinking, when we get caught in aversion or, or, or envy or shame, the way that our perception becomes so selective, have you noticed that? We only see that which is broken and which is imperfect somehow. Um, we see what is wrong, and I think research tells us the way that the human mind is inclined towards noticing what is wrong and what is imperfect. And, but in doing that, often what happens is that we become very prone to seize upon the particulars, to seize upon the fragments of another person or ourselves and mistake them to be the whole. So we seize upon a mood or a thought or a loss or a despair and they become the whole and we say, well, that's who I am and that's who you are. And our world shrinks in that, doesn't it? So taking our attention elsewhere is not about avoidance. It's, it's really about reclaiming that which has been lost. <coughs> reclaiming the whole of the moment, the fullness of the moment that has often been lost or dismissed or forgotten, widening the field of awareness. Anxiety is happening, so too is the sound of the bird. Pain is happening, so too is the sound of the rain outside the window. 
there's pain in the body. And you know what? The palm of my hand feels actually just fine. Huh? In, in widening that field of awareness, we perhaps become less prone to mistake our conclusions and assumptions to be the whole truth, less prone to say, I am, you are. We begin to see coexistence of the lovely and the unlovely, the painful and the well, the difficult and the touching, the coexistence, rather than seeing these always as being dichotomized states. And there is much more spaciousness to be found in that. But it says if it still arises, if it still arises, if the Buddha says, if it still arises, cultivate the skillful and the healing qualities that are missing or absent. We're often encouraged in this tradition to cultivate metta or boundless friendliness as an antidote to aversion. Forgiveness in the landscape of, of, of injury and hurt. Compassion in the midst of the times of abandonment. Joy countering the tendency to see only that which is broken. Equanimity in the midst of the highs and the lows. And none of these cultivations are actually alien to to contemporary mindfulness-based applications. We cultivate equanimity within the body scan. We cultivate the capacity for joy within the pleasant events calendar. We cultivate the capacity for compassion to being able to listen, people being able to listen to one another in groups. None of this is foreign. If it still arises... (laughs) Obviously, the methods, the responses kind of get a little bit more extreme as we go through this list. And this next one's really a big one, and I really need to hear you, you to hear this with some uh, discernment, please, because the metaphor that's used, it sounds very graphic and brutal. It talks about, and we need to be very careful about here how we hear the word restraint, because its near enemy certainly is suppression you know, and pushing away and, and pushing down. He said, if it still arises, put the tongue against your roof of your mouth and don't go there. This has always been an interesting one for me, this, this quality of restraint, because it's talking about restraint rooted in understanding. It's talking about restraint rooted in understanding the nature of habit rather than judgment. Sometimes, you know, as I mentioned, we we have a lot of insight about our emotional patterns. You know, I come from a huge, long lineage of impatient people. You know, know, my my father's really impatient. Apparently, his his father was even more impatient. Apparently, his his father was unbearable. (laughs) You know, know, I don't need to know any more about the lineage, uh, you know, the generational inheritance of my impatience, you know. We often see this, don't we, in our lives? We actually have done the investigation, you know. We know the story behind some of our our injuries, our, our hurts, our pains, our wounds. We know the story. We know the narrative. We, we spent a lot of time with this, you know. We, we've, we've brought the compassion. We've brought the, compa- the kindness. You know what? There isn't any more insight. And actually, sometimes what we're left with is the sense now, this is a habit. It's a habit. But even then, there's sometimes this little bit of belief, you know, that if we go around this obsessional story one more time, I'm going to get that magical bit of insight that brings this habit pattern to an end. And that's kind of the hook, isn't it? It's kind of the hook. But sometimes, sometimes we know it, and, and the well is dry. There, there isn't any more insight to, to squeeze out. And this is the place, actually, where the Buddha's talking about this kind of restraint. It's not talking about, you know, this kind of fierce gritting your teeth or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes we see it, don't we? We see a familiar pattern maybe of judgment arising. And there's that little moment when we see it and we really sense there might be a choice. And maybe I don't need to jump into it. 
you know, or maybe some historical story of injury arises, and we, you know, we really have brought everything we can to it. We understand it, and we start to see the narrative start to, to start to begin. And may we sense, you know, I can I can hold this in a different way, you know, not feeding it, not having to go around the loop again, but maybe walking really a different pathway in this moment of cultivating the, the kindness and care and spaciousness of this moment. And actually, we actually see this often, you know, in, in contemporary mindfulness-based applications, don't we? When, when sometimes there's a sense of overwhelm and, and often the encouragement to come to that, that breathing space. Just breathe out for a moment. Just ground in the body. Maybe we, there is another pathway that can be walked. The last of these uh, responses, I really am getting to the end of this list. If it still arises, the Buddha says, ask for help. <laughs> and I actually think this is a really important one, you know. I, I think sometimes we can have, you know, you know, such an exaggerated sense of responsibility. And sometimes there's a lot of pride in that. You know, this says, I always do this alone. You know, it's all up to me. I have to do this on my, on my own. And, and I think sometimes, you know, we recognize in ourselves at the moments when people, when we, we reach out to help another, just in an unhesitating way, as, as an act of compassion. And I think that there is something kind of skewed at times when we think uh, somehow we, we, we need to be immune to that. We all have moments of heartache in our lives, moments of feeling lost, moments of despair. And I think there, there's actually a great, there's a great humility and also a great gift in actually knowing when it's right to ask for help, knowing that actually we don't do this alone. None of us do this alone in our life. And, and in that sense, acknowledging that bond and that interconnectedness and how to receive, how to receive, and when it is helpful to receive. This is a practice of the moment. It is concerned with what is. It is concerned with what is possible. It is a pathway, the whole path of mindfulness is concerned with, with realizing, I think, the greatness of the human heart, its capacities for very profound joy, very profound peace, very profound awakening, very profound compassion. And it is a practice of the moment, what is being cultivated what is being embraced, what is being understood in this moment that we are present in. Thank you for your attention. If we take just a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. <laughs> 